Hello to all our beloved Little Red podcasters. Just before we get started, I wanted to tell you about my new podcast. It's the story of my obsession for the past eight years, and it's also the story of Hong Kong. It's called The King of Kowloon, and you can hear it if you search for The King of Kowloon or RN Presents, as in Radio National Presents, on your podcast platform. I think you'll like it. It's about identity, politics, social change and one eccentric old graffiti vandal. Anyway, for now, on with the show. Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined actually in the studio by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. During Shanghai's lockdown, many households were bemused when they ran out of food but had a seemingly endless supply delivered to their doorstep of a traditional Chinese medicine, Lianghua Qingwen. Uh, there was even a Weibo influencer, Wang Sutong, with more than 40 million followers, who found himself kicked off the platform when he questioned whether the, the World Health Organization had endorsed the drug and urged an investigation into its manufacturers, Shijiazhuang Yilin Pharmaceutical. But the drug is wildly popular in Singapore, and there's been panic buying of it in China's diaspora communities whenever there's a COVID outbreak. To shed some light on what's going on with traditional Chinese medicine and the Chinese state, we're joined by Michael Stanley Baker, historian of Chinese medicine and religion at Nanyang Technological University, and Altman Yuju Peng, researcher of intercultural communications at the University of Warwick. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. A question for both of you. I mean, uh, before we get into the politics of TCM, I mean, does Lianghua Qingwen work? What's been your personal experiences? Uh, for, for me, actually, as a Chinese national who lives abroad, I did receive a package of uh, Lianghua Qingwen from the Chinese consulate. And I've never tried it myself, <laughs> I have to say. And to be honest, because this drug has never been tested, well, been through that kind of double-blind uh, review uh, determine whether it's re uh, its efficacy on COVID nineteen. So I never tried it uh, myself, and I don't really uh, trust the efficacy of this medicine at all. Now, Michael, I, I know for sure that you you've given it a go and and sort of done an experiment on yourself and your wife. How did that go? Um, yeah, it went well actually. We both we all came down with COVID, um, and so I'm there's basically. You know, nothing to take. We were we were over at the um, at the Omicron end of uh, the, the 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 pandemic, so we're basically at home with kind of fluey symptoms and 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 uh, brain fog. So and so we we got both in, and I tried. You know, it wasn't a long durée trial; it was more like sampling over a couple of days, and certainly not double blind. Um, but I found what worked for me better was the Lianghua Qingwen. I found that responded better. I could note had noticeable improvement. Um, but my wife preferred the NRI CM101, um, and she preferred that. So, yeah, I found it helpful. I didn't. There's certainly no harm in taking it. What did it do for you? Generally, a little bit more energy. I would notice actually within within about two to three hours of taking it, um, less fog, uh, less congestion, 
um, <clears throat> generally better able to function, less of that kind of fuzzy, hazy sensation that you have around the surface of the body. And Oman, I'm just really interested that you got a package from the Chinese embassy. I mean, how often do they send you things or was this a one-off? Uh, it was uh, one off thing for me, but I think some students, I mean, uh, my students seem to receive more from the Chinese embassy. It's basically during uh, a peak of a pandemic, the Chinese embassy start uh, sending um, PPE uh, equipment and uh, other kind of uh, medicines to uh, Chinese nationals as a way to show how much the government cares about us. Some stuff they send to us are quite useful, the face mask. During that time, it was quite difficult to get hold of. But yeah, Lianhua Qingwen was uh, the only medicine we received from the Chinese embassy. And do you know what the active ingredients are? And why is it that the Chinese state is, seems so invested in promoting this drug that it's sending it to its citizens overseas? Well, first is, I believe, uh, the business plays a key role in the process because uh, in a uh, Chinese public health system, we is famous for the kind of uh, two uh, dual track system. So it incorporates uh, what's called uh, Western medicine in the Chinese language and uh, referred to modern medicine. And uh, the other part then is traditional Chinese medicine. And a lot of drugs, including Lianhua Qingwen, is included in the list, which is sponsored by the government to uh, offer to the general public, include in the public health insurance system. And for companies which make this kind of drug, these pharmaceutical companies, then they have good connections with the government, then we, they will be able to promote their medicine through their connections with government officials within the system. And for this case, I believe that's a reflection of how pharmaceutical businesses connect with their connection with the government works. But then in the meantime, because the public health system is also politicized, and that's also the case elsewhere, but in China in particular, because the traditional medicine is uh, associate with political legacy, for example, of uh, Mao Zedong, who famously concluded that we still need the traditional medicine, so uh, stopped abolishing uh, Chinese medicine uh, movement within the public health system. Uh, so it's a part of a political legacy, and for the government to, to promote traditional Chinese medicine made by a Chinese pharmaceutical company, uh, it's uh, effectively also a part of their political propaganda during the pandemic to show the advantage of being a Chinese national uh, living in this country. So, so Michael, just to I mean, take it back a little bit to unpack this dual dual delivery system or this dual system of of, of Chinese health with Western medicine on one side and and traditional Chinese medicine on the other. I mean, when I think back to my um, old revolutionaries, um, when they wrote about traditional Chinese medicine, they very much saw it as sort of a feudal remnant, this sort of thing that needed to be abolished in, in favour of Western science. I mean, how did China come to have uh, this dual system that is, is, is very much entrenched these days? So uh, actually, I want to go back to the earlier question. Um, 
that you'd asked about the efficacy, if I if that's okay. Because I think that 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 question about efficacy is 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 a loaded one that has multiple ramifications. Um, because we can, so I think, so I, I appreciate Altman, your your political analysis of how the NYT one is delivered through the insurance system, through through the medical support system, and also through the propaganda arm. And that's a kind of efficacy, but that's an argument about political efficacy. And I understood your question to be about its physiological efficacy. And so what we're really talking about when we're talking about efficacy are, it's actually a very multi-sided term. So efficacy is determined by, you know, current standard of science to be the highest standard of verification is the gold standard randomized double-blind controlled trial. But that's not the way that efficacy has always been um, measured or performed uh, in healing cultures around the world. And those healing cultures predate um, scientific method and still have a lot of persistence. Um, nevertheless, if you want to ask about efficacy in terms of Lianghua Qingwen itself, at least the argument is in the title, right? Which is Lianghua, which are these two different ingredients. Uh, Lianqiao and uh, Jingyinghua are proposed to be the two the primary guiding ingredients. So the Jin's, the, the, the emperor herbs in the, in the formula. Um, and at least uh, Yangling Jiaodong University just came out with a study in Pharmacology Frontiers um, just in March, arguing that honeysuckle, which is Jinyu Ha, has been shown to have antiviral uh, activity in vitro. Now, that's not the same as a randomized double controlled trial. Nevertheless, it's indicative. I also think, you know, when we're talking about efficacy and you're comparing, um, you know, the ways in which Western drugs are judged to be efficacious and assessed to be efficacious within both the pharmaceutical industry and the, you know, the, the sort of public health and government ratifying ag- agencies that coordinate with those um, forms, you've also got to look at the economics of how these things are, how this efficacy is derived. And there's much less um, money in proving that a natural herb works than there is in proving that a synthetic compound works. So there's also a, a large amount of kind of political and economic imbalances, and you can't really just compare one single notion of efficacy. You have to kind of look at it within a complex of epistemological, institutional, and social dimensions. Hmm. But if I could push back a little bit on that, I mean, this company is making billions on this herb. They, they definitely have enough money to to go and fund research into it. Um, it's, it's for, for them, it's not so much um, about traditional healing, but it's, you know, they are making billions off this. So if they wanted to do the double-blind study, this company in particular doesn't lack the resources to do so. Right. So again, you also have to look about what are considered sufficient standards of efficacy around the world and for the Chinese government, and at least to market, as, as Altman describes so very well, um, that drug within the Chinese community, they've already done sufficient work to justify that to the Chinese state. So it's already considered efficacious within the Chinese health community, at least within certain sectors of the Chinese health community. But I mean, one thing that was put to us is is part of the reason why these things are promoted is the vaccination rates amongst elderly people in China are shocking, like they're, they're very low vaccination rates compared to elsewhere. I mean, is part of it that TCM is a way to at least get elderly Chinese to go and see a doctor and potentially, you know, then get vaccinated and seek other treatment? Is that part of the justification from the Chinese side? No, Alban, do you have a, do you have a take on that? 
Uh, sure. Um, I mean, for the uh, traditional Chinese medicine, indeed, uh, that's more well received amongst the elderly people. They're more willing to take traditional Chinese medicine and uh, trust uh, practitioners who prescribe this kind of medicine to them. So um, in a way, it could be justified in this way. But uh, in China, the politics first is always happened uh, behind the closed doors. You never know how the decision making process and in all this kind of decision making uh, my assessment or my understanding of chinese politics is uh, not uh, driven by a single factor there are uh, multiple players being involved in the process and in particular as i mentioned the pharmaceutical company which uh, they develop their uh, connections with the government officials who uh, well their guanxi the social capital um, and uh, even nepotism, and being able to offer their products to public health insurance. And in this case, it's likely to be the case because the pharmaceutical company, uh, Yiling uh, Pharmaceutical Company, is actually uh, well connected with the government and their stock uh, price, uh, their share price actually increased significantly over the pandemic and showing that they are, uh, this is indeed a lucrative business. And uh, this kind of success, it couldn't be achieved, especially in the public health system, couldn't be achieved without government officials' support. And for the government officials, on the one hand, as Michael said, this medicine, uh, personally, because I'm more skeptical of uh, the efficacy of this medicine, but presumably it has some effect on certain kind of symptoms. And for the government officials, it's justifiable to include the medicine in uh, promoting the medicine uh, from this perspective. In the meantime, that's also a way to show uh, the governments they are using uh, traditional Chinese medicine along with other kind of, for example, the traditional Chinese sorting uh, governing uh, governing the society and uh, how they manage to control the outbreak uh, within China. Uh, so altogether, it becomes part of the political campaign during the pandemic to show why Chinese government could uh, manage to get the outbreak under control within the Chinese territory, whereas the uh, Western government, they can't. Uh, and we have seen the, this kind of politicized nature of the debate. We can see uh, actually was in April uh, when news uh, about the uh, inefficacy of Lianhua uh, Qingwen and even uh, severe side effects of the medicine being uh, reported by the media. And we could see public figures uh, criticizing the Chinese government's promotion of the medicine and uh, by extension, their uh, continued use of severe measures uh, in China to manage the outbreak, including, for example, uh, Wang Sitong. He criticized uh, on Weibo and soon deleted his comments. And uh, no one knows whether it's himself deleted the comments or is actually being censored because since then his, his Weibo account was suspended on the platform. It, it's worth bearing in mind, at least from the perspective of Chinese medicine, and, and I'm not here advocating any of the you know, Chinese, the machinations of the Chinese state and how it's promoting it. Um, but certainly in terms of 
uh, preventing uh, the disease itself, we have a very different notion um, within Chinese medicine because there's no concept of a virus right, in traditional Chinese medicine. So what Qingwen is doing, Lianghua Qingwen is doing, is treating the, the collection of sy the, the syndrome of symptoms, right, that, that's coming out of it. Um, the notion of Chinese being or, or transmissible disease really only entered China in the late 19th century. Gaoxi has a, from Fudan Dacia has a really nice paper on it. Um, so, it, so that notion was, came into play during the Wuhan period of the outbreak, where people were going in and taking formula, um, not, only in, um, not only after they'd been infected, but also the medical staff that were going in and treating people were also taking it to build up their immunity, their prevention. Um, when I say that immunity, I say that quite loosely. This is not a biological immunity to the to the virus at all. So there's also this notion that 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 you know, Qingwen can treat the symptoms, can treat the disease, and and the notion of prevention versus cure is more um, ambiguous. It's more nuanced um, within the epistemological domain of Chinese medicine. So are you saying that Lianghua Qingwen can be used as a preventative as well, or at least that's what one of the reasons that they're giving for distributing it? It is considered that it can be, and some people do take it. I'm not advocating that, <laughs> yeah. but um, it, that's part of the concept. Yeah, that's, that's in there. So, so you know, in the, in, in the failure of being able to put in all of the infrastructure to get the vaccines out, for example, uh, you could see that that could be a, an a alternate conceptual handhold um, that people could be using to think, think about the problem. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? When you start looking at the different systems of medicine in the way that you've just explained, how conceptually different they are. I mean, it's almost like it's hard for them to exist in the same space because the conceptual understanding of disease is so different. I mean, how does the state deal with that, Michael? Well, it's 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 run into a system. It's been you know giving both um, uh, both forms of treatment are available uh, in hospitals. Um, they're often intermixed, um, and you know it it really comes down to on the ground how physicians interact with one another. At least from reports that I heard. So this is secondhand reports um, from people who knew people who were out during the Wuhan um, operation when they were in the the height of the triage. Um, situation and, and fending off and using all resources that they had to hand. Now, this is a very different kind of situation. That's the emergency outbreak of the crisis, not, you know, the, the, the building up of government infrastructures later on. Um, the doctors worked very well together, according to reports, and they were, they were quite good at handing off. Saying, well, you are good at this. Okay, you go treat this cough syndrome. Okay, you, you can treat the cytokine storm issue, so you go off and handle this. Um, so at least this, the, the as it has been described, there is a spirit of camaraderie and cooperation um, on, at the site of duress. Um, that's a different thing once you start getting into institutional outplay um, and how you develop and construct those systems. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe institutional outplay because that was at the early stages. And I think now you have huge vested interests involved when you're talking billions of dollars. I'm curious as to whether, you know, out of envy or, or out of, you know, scientific concern that has there been any pushback within the Chinese, what you call Western medical community against, you know, how, how well these drugs are selling um, compared to, you know, how well the, the Western um, approach to treating the uh, virus is, is doing? Um, question for either of you, really. Speaking from Singapore, absolutely. The Singapore government has not ratified any TCM treatments for treating COVID whatsoever. 
um, and and advocates for it from the opposition party were shouted down both in parliament and then later in all the propaganda arms um, you know, within the next few days. And then it was, and the MOH, the Minister of Health, quickly rolled out statements that um, TCM and particularly the Yonghua Qingwen does not treat COVID. Um, that's a, it's a, when you read it closely, that's a nuanced claim because of course, the Yonghua Qingwen doesn't treat COVID, it treats these symptoms, right? And they still would claim it does treat the symptoms of cold and flu, but many of those symptoms overlap. So it's a, it's a nuanced position, actually. Altman, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, uh, unlike Michael, I'm not an expert in uh, medicine per se. And uh, for me, my assessment is more from uh, focusing on how the debates are politicized. And in particular, uh, very interesting, Interesting why I observed through my data analysis mentioned in uh, the paper I published. Uh, uh, and uh, what I discovered is that um, this kind of the position, the stance uh, the general public, public takes on traditional Chinese medicine associated with their uh, support, uh, support or disapproval of the Chinese government, uh, or not necessarily Chinese government per se, but at least their approach to uh, the pandemic to manage uh, to managing the outbreak. I conducted a research on Zhihu, which is a Chinese equivalent of uh, Quora in uh, in the English word, uh, knowledge sharing website, and uh, usually is the mid the kind of middle class informed inter uh, internet users engaging in social discussion uh, debates. And uh, in this case, in my data analysis, I discovered that. Uh, in general, those uh, general public or Zhihu users who support uh, Chinese government, they tend to support traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, and uh, those who uh, disapprove of Chinese governments or uh, specifically their approach to the pandemic are often uh, disapproval of uh, traditional Chinese and they are crit uh, criticizing Chinese traditional Chinese medicine as well. Uh, and very interesting because in the beginning, the when I conduct research, I, uh, my thought was that this probably won't be uh, I won't be able to substantiate the claims through quantitative methods because these kind of comments are so nuanced. But actually, in the end, uh, the coding results suggest that there's a, uh, the result is statistically significant. That means this kind of association is. Uh, even uh, supported by statistical analysis that's, that uh, didn't happen by chance. That's, uh, that's really interesting that traditional Chinese medicine seems to be almost like a proxy for people's view of the Chinese state's handling of the pandemic. I mean, what do you think the implications are when it comes to China's soft power, the way in which they're using traditional Chinese medicine? I mean, Altman, that... I understand that they're sending traditional Chinese medicine as medical aid to um, Pacific countries and places like that. Do you think those results, do they only apply for people who speak Chinese or do you think they apply internationally as well? Uh, well, for the Chinese government, uh, as you mentioned, the soft power is indeed important part of, of their public diplomacy. And they're trying to promote traditional uh, Chinese culture as a way to uh, increase uh, the China, uh, increase China's influence on the world stage, so they indeed try to speak with those 
and non-Chinese speakers, but uh, at the moment, uh, like other aspects of the public diplomacy, it doesn't work very well. Uh, it's not that well received because, well, the approach they take, even though they try to increase their influence, they're trying to promote uh, their influence on the world stage, but in the meantime, a lot of political decisions, they have a domestic orientation. And for them, my assessment is, is more facilitating uh, the justification of their political system in the eyes of the Chinese audience. That indeed is quite effective. But on the world stage, uh, to non-Chinese speakers, uh, that strategy apparently didn't work very well. Because this kind of propaganda is often associated with uh, Chinese nationalism. Now, Louise, I think you need to have full disclosure. You you are, are not a complete skeptic on, on traditional Chinese medicine. There's one particular variety that uh, that you can't do without, I understand. Oh, I love Banlangan. I, I use it at every opportunity, and I do actually use it as a preventative the minute I feel like I'm going to get a cold. I don't know if it's been through Altman. I, I have no idea if it's been through double-blind testing. I don't know what the active ingredients are, but I, I, I love it. I can't live without it. I even travel with it. And she's always very healthy. <laughs> to, to, to add to the, to the use of herb, herbs and in, individual herbs, and certainly in the African um, context, um, you know, we've, we've got a chapter coming out and should have been out already in this Routledge Volume Handbook of Chinese Medicine on sort of uh, Chinese outreach to Africa. Um, through TCM. And a lot of the appeal um, by reports, they, they've been working in Madagascar and Algeria and many other, many, many other areas, using um, TCM as a kind of entry in to create better relations. Um, and it's the use of herbs like Bandangan and others that local uh, you know, users find familiar. And, and so that they, they get an, there's an appeal there. So that, that gets them into areas, perhaps, or into communities, perhaps, where um, you know, the kind of biomedical uh, public aid um, doesn't reach, or maybe it reaches other sectors. How effective and how broad that is in the sentiment in the population, I think, varies a lot. And it's definitely not separate from the other economic factors. Yeah. And about a decade ago, when I got malaria in Papua New Guinea, um, I got both the the sort of the very nasty Western medicine, but also on the side, a traditional Chinese herb. You probably know the name of it, Michael. It's, it's slipped my mind for now, but it's often used to treat malaria. Was that a big part of the push in Africa as well? Um, that's a good question. Um, it, it, so the herb is Qinghao and, um, or Artemisia. Um, and then was actually developed the basis of artemisinin, um, which is now used by, by Western physicians as well in a sort of synthetic form. Um, although studies have started to show that the synthetic form isn't actually effective as that which is derived from the herb itself. Um, yeah, um, in, in terms of malaria outreach in Africa, I can't say specifically, but, um, and the degree to which Jinghao is a part of this, the, one of the public health uh, sort of victories that was went very uncelebrated in late 2020 was the fact that they eradicated malaria entirely in China, which the World Health Organization hasn't been able to do anywhere else. Uh, yeah, do you mind I also add a point? <laughs> because uh, it's actually like uh, Luisha, I, I'm a, a skeptical of uh, tra- use of uh, the way in which traditional Chinese medicine is used in uh, Chinese pub, uh, China's public health system at the moment, especially during the pandemic. But in the meantime, I have to disclose that my mom is uh, 
a doctor, a Chinese, uh, and she used traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, actually, some uh, sometimes I'm relying on her prescription uh, to treat some of the disease I have. A very recent example, and that also shows um, a traditional Chinese medicine, I believe that kind of knowledge system is indeed very different. The way in which they diagnose, the way in which they uh, understand the human body is indeed very different than uh, modern uh, Chinese, uh, modern medical science. Uh, and a lot of medicine, they are unable to pass that kind of double-blind test because that's a very case-by-case -case scenario. And I'm referring to an example I I had uh, very recently, I have uh, sleeping issues uh, and uh, overly relying on sleeping pills. Apparently that's not healthy. So I asked for uh, my mom's help and she prescribed me uh, traditional Chinese herbs. And indeed that works, that actually works. And I believe that was not a placebo effect. Indeed, that worked on my body because the medicine also gave me uh, other side effects. Um, uh, I had, well, it's a bit awkward. I had constipations after taking a certain Chinese herb. So my mom decided, well, if that works, uh, help your sleeping, but then uh, give you constipation. So she removed one of the herbs, which is considered the reason why it gave me this kind of side effect. But then when remove that herb, then all of a sudden this medicine first, it doesn't work. And then it gives me some other, <laughs> some other side effect, which is, well, it's very awkward. My nipples start growing. <laughs> so I can't imagine this happening. And my mom didn't have a clue why it happened and why the original prescription works. And then without one single herb, it gives me a completely different side effect. So you can see this kind of, the way in which they diagnose, the way in which they help people is very different. And sometimes I have to say, the practitioners, they, they are also doing experiments on each individual case. So the way in which they do things, definitely it cannot pass the kind of uh, double blind test, that kind of highest standard in modern uh, medical science. Uh, but in the meantime, they are able to uh, help people in certain ways. So, uh, and, uh, so I would say my position on traditional Chinese medicine is more very, very much pragmatic. So I believe that uh, they have efficacy on certain scenarios, but in the meantime, I'm skeptical of the way in which it's being used, being considered as a kind of the same way as uh, modern medicine. I, I quite agree with you, Altman, there. I mean, as a, because I, I, having a clinical degree in Chinese medicine myself and, and having seen results in clinic, um, which, you know, medicine, in some cases, people couldn't get results from Western medicine, and you see how Chinese medicine can be effective. But that's not a, to say that it's a universal thing. I think it's, it is really important to, to think about the way that Chinese medicine is delivered. It's the ultimate personalized medicine, because every time a patient walks in the physician's door, it's a new diagnosis, it's a new disease, so you re-prescribe. And so you would never say, oh, just keep taking this one pill ad infinitum. But that, that, that approach, mind you, that can lead to you know, symptoms, as you described, side, sorry, the side effects, um, and these kind of things, which, the, which, is, which are constantly adapted, which is one of the problems of doing this large-scale randomized double-blind trials. It's one of the reasons that Chinese medicine is maligned in the, in the, in the press, 
they always say, oh, you can get killed by taking Chinese medicine. And they always cite ephedra or mahong, which is which in the cases where people died from taking it, they were taking it in, a, in an American repackaged form as a diet substitute and also for energy, like an energy tonic, like a, a Red Bull or something. So people kept taking them, taking that single herb at doses that no Chinese physician would prescribe. So that need for, you know, very close diagnosis is, um, is, is important. And so I think even in Chinese takers of those pills will also know you should only take them for a certain amount of time and, and what kind of things to look out for. But that need for personalization of the medicine, it does seem to indicate that actually if the state was trying to use traditional Chinese medicine as a, a form of medical diplomacy, it could actually not be that helpful because it actually probably might not necessarily work when sort of dispensed in this way in massive quantities. Is, is, is that correct, Michael? It's a, well, interestingly, the, 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 the formation of these pre, pre-packaged, pre-designed formulas in a mass form goes dates back to the 11th century, um, to the Song Dynasty, when they were also having um, huge epidemics. Um, and in order to address these, and also it was also a big economic and political issue, um, they they set up a, nas- a, a national pharmacy. Um, so they would prepare these packages at the, in the capital, and they would distribute them out, and people would get them with much less um, kind of physician careful diagnosis. Um, so that pattern's been there for a long time, but again, people take those within a certain ex- set of expectations, a cultural set of expectations. And we're working now within, you know, multiple health systems, multiple uh, medical epistemologies. Um, so it's, um, you know, it, it, these medicines are now circulating in a different context. I and mean, that's not to say that everyone who takes the MOT1 is going to have something disastrous happen. So could I go back to the history question? why we end up with the dual system. It, it's often just slated to, well, Mao was into it, so it, it was in there. But, I mean, is, is it more complicated than that, Michael? Yeah. I mean, since the it, Chinese medicine has gone through a series of, of, of approvals and tests and, 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 and re, reaffirmations, but most particularly in the early 20th century, um, when you had biomedical doctors coming in, arguing that this doesn't operate within their paradigm, much earlier than Mao's affirmation, you had doctors kind of, of asserting a kind of a hybrid combination, a scientized version where people were doing these comparative translational exercises. As um, uh, Sean Lay's, the title of Sean Lay's book calls it, it's neither donkey nor horse or fame off elu, right? It's this kind of hybrid emerging context of, 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 of medical translation. It's an ongoing thing. I mean, even, even in today, when you take people who are st- so-called strictly practicing Chinese medicine um, in any clinic, be it in China or elsewhere, they're reading x-rays, they're getting blood reports, they're you know, finding out about the, the hormones in, in the body, et cetera. So there's, it's already a very mixed kind of practice. Altman, do you think though that given the sort of, the fact that COVID is here to stay and China is still embarked on you know, this, image building scheme, do you think that we are going to see much more use of traditional Chinese medicine as medical diplomacy um, overseas? Well, in terms of the use of traditional Chinese medicine, we're definitely going to see that plays a major role in China's combat against uh, the pandemic within the Chinese territory. 
the extent to which uh, they will increase the kind of promotion overseas, that's uh, something difficult to predict. But uh, my understanding is that they're likely to continue to promote the same way as they did during uh, the peak of the pandemic. Uh, because um, this kind of the use of traditional Chinese medicine is very much associated with a traditional Chinese culture. And in particular, she personally seemed to be a fan of uh, this kind of idea of promoting a traditional uh, culture against the Western influence. So uh, we will continue to see this kind of public diplomacy for sure. And and finally, I did want to ask you, um, what do you think for Lianghua Qingwen? Has this actually been good or bad? I mean, it seems there's been quite a backlash against this medicine, especially in Shanghai, because people... And maybe not because of the medicine itself, but because people were not having enough food to eat, but continued to get this medicine, you know, delivered daily and they got really fed up with it. Do you think they've played it well or have they played it poorly? Apparently, the Shanghai outbreak, the most recent outbreak in Shanghai changed uh, a lot of people's perspective within China because uh, we could see that uh, since the peak of the pandemic in outside worlds, uh, China managed to uh, get it under control and people live in that kind of normal-ish life within China for almost two years. So there are a lot of supporters, uh, people who are supportive of this use of severe measures. But then in Shanghai, the outbreak, uh, when they lose control, when people uh, got st- uh, starved in the most uh, developed uh, city in this country, then uh, we could see that uh, a lot of people start changing and we could even see people start uh, running away from the country. They, call, uh, they develop a very interesting term, run. Uh, which, uh, well, means wrong, but they use a Chinese character to replace it to avoid internet censorship. So we could see sentiment change in China. But then this kind of change, to what extent that will uh, really lead to a change of the government's policy, and in particular, uh, most observers or uh, academics will closely observing the issue we uh, predict that it's long, unlikely to change, especially when the party conference is coming up very soon. But do you think it's changed Chinese people's views towards traditional Chinese medicine itself? Uh, for this single, uh, because traditional Chinese medicine, those who believe in traditional Chinese medicine, they are uh, they're influenced by the politics, but it's not just about politics. There are still strong support for traditional Chinese medicine within uh, Chinese society, in, pl- in particular uh, the earthly generation. A lot of them, even critical of the government, they still believe in traditional Chinese medicine within the community. As I mentioned in my paper, this, uh, the kind of association between uh, supporting traditional Chinese uh, medicine and supporting Chinese government is more, it plays out within the context of uh, politicized debate. But then uh, it's actually um, what kind of medicine they choose is not just influenced by politics. So uh, this is a more nuanced issue. And I don't think uh, unable to control, uh, unable to control the outbreak where it leads to 
a lot more people start uh, disbelieving uh, traditional Chinese medicine. To look more broadly outside of outside of China, um, and you don't have to look under institutions that have China on the front cover, but have them in the gears. You look at the International Classification of Diseases, it's published by the WHO, and in the 11th uh, publication, which came out in 2019, um, they included a whole host of Chinese medical disease terms um, to the great, uh, to mixed reception, let's say, um, with a great deal of anger uh, within certain sectors of the scientific community, and a great deal of celebration, of course, among practitioners, not only of traditional Chinese medicine, but also other natural health, traditional health um, practices from around the world. Um, and just uh, two months ago, they published a whole set of a translation of Chinese uh, technical terms, conceptual terms, basically standardizing the translation of Chinese medicine for globalized medical usage. So, and as we know, the WHO is not um, impartial with relation to China. We can just look at the exclusion of Taiwan, uh, for example, from, from the WHO. To, as a sign for the, the kind of influence that's there. Um, it's not entirely neutral body. So that's, it's, in terms of its further circulation, that's definitely um, the, what's going on and, and the, way, the way it's gonna be moving forward. Um, what we're also seeing as research on COVID burgeoned around the world in ways that nobody has ever seen before, that's been happening too with research on the herbs um, coming out. So there's a host of studies now um, about the different ingredients, um, and, and they're continuing to produce these because of validating not just, and also to come from areas that are not just China, from Taiwan, for example, the National um, Health Bureau, as well as um, Yangming University are publishing studies on in vitro trials um, against uh, viral effect and for viral effects against Chinese herbs, and using these to validate not the Chinese government, but Chinese medicine. and and. Those two are clearly related in certain domains of the public sphere, but they also have their different avenues too. I just really loved that fact that, Michael, that you said about the Song Dynasty and the standardization of herbs. I thought that's amazing. I've never heard that before. What was the pandemic or illness that was being treated at that time? Well, historical, you know, retrospective, retrospective diagnosis of epidemics is difficult uh, to do. <laughs> <laughs> So, but they were described as qi, basically, qi being, you know, these fast spreading diseases. Um, but still, although people recognized that they were spreading, um, the notion of human to human transmission wasn't really present. It didn't really come in until, until the 19th century with John Fu. Given your knowledge of the way China has dealt with epidemics in the past, and, you know, it was really interesting what you said about the Song Dynasty, do you have any indication of trends in the future? So with, with that advent of the Song Dynasty, which you also, uh, and this uh, national pharmacy, that also occurred at the time that printing started to flourish in China. So recipe books were spreading all across. So you had a massive new tech communication technology. Then you also had the state introducing a new sort of set of official, the formal offices within the government. So you had new medical bureaucracy, new medical communication, new medical infrastructure occurring around these pandemics. And at that time, Chinese pharmacological theory went through a massive paradigm shift. And from that emerged four or five major schools of thought, which have dominated Chinese pharmacology since. And I think we can look at this historical moment as something parallel. We have a new technology, we have the internet, and we have new sort of state relations 
producing a whole different kind of distribution of um, of medicine and of and of kind of healing knowledges and where that's going to go will be very interesting to see. Michael Altman, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. And if you've made it this far, don't forget to give my new podcast a go. It's called The King of Kowloon. It's the strange story of an old eccentric who became an icon. You'll find it wherever you find your podcasts. So please like it, share it, tell your friends. And whatever you do, do keep listening to The Little Red Podcast. Bye for now.